32 counties united by people. My name is Una and this is United Ireland. Andrea is off for this app. She will be back ASAP. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. Uh, we need your support and we have loads of it. Thank you so much to everybody who subscribes to our Patreon and pays for this podcast and keeps us going. You can do that too. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland, just around three euro a month and you support all this, all of these like podcast episodes, main episodes that we do. You get the Sunday Soothe and also bonus episodes as well. We've got a new byline episode coming up this week. Uh, our much-loved companion series where we talk to great journalists about the stories that matter. We've got a new one of those coming up this week. We've got more 32 questions coming up um, with a politician or two on the horizon as well. And a couple of sneaky bonus culture episodes. All of that can only happen if you uh, give us a hand. Patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. Merci. So on this week's episode, this week's question, right? Ireland's aircraft leasing sector. It's a huge multi-billion euro industry. But how did this sector get to be so big and quite specific to Ireland in a way? And what happens when EU sanctions against Russia trap countless planes in that country, which is increasingly um, economically cut off from the rest of the world? The aircraft leasing industry, like you hear about it, sector, that it's like a, a massive thing in Ireland, but it's kind of underreported as well. But luckily, Peter O'Dwyer of the Business Post uh, has been writing a good deal about it. And I'm kind of fascinated um, by these these industries that make so much money and are worth so much money, um, basing a, a chunk of themselves in Ireland. So he's been um, writing about this. He's been writing about the sanctions impact on the sector. And he's going to be with us for a big aircraft leasing explainer. So if you, like me, have always been like, what is that about? You're about to find out. But first, it's the State of the Nation. I did actually stay up to watch um, most of the Oscars on Sunday night. Of course, I went to bed before the biggest moment of the evening occurred, which was Will Smith clocking Chris Rock um, happened. So delighted for Kenneth Branagh and screenplay win. Very sad about Jessie Buckley not winning, but she will get her chance and actually really delighted that West Side Story um, won uh, uh, at least something in the acting for Ireland was in, in West Side Story because I just thought it was an amazing film and kind of got lost in the pandemic noise and cinema closures and that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know, like the, the Will Smith, Chris Rock thing was really interesting. Like what I find fascinating is the stuff around Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith's relationship, like the way they talk about having an open relationship or did in the past or whatever, and how conservative Hollywood is in a, in a weird way, even though it's like depicted as this kind of back and alien industry. But they take so much crap about actually being relatively honest, I guess, about their relationship. And all this like jokes and punchlines and all that kind of stuff. And there were a couple of jokes made during the night. And apparently there's some beef about Chris Rock making one previously. But it is kind of like, do you know what? Just shut up. <laughs> I mean, maybe don't go up and like smack someone across the face. But like, I get it. Um, so, yeah, mad. Oh, I just find it really weird that like people who are kind of more honest about their relationship, you know, in public or whatever, end up becoming these punchlines. I also thought... 
that the three presenters, so there's Regina King, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes, uh, their opening salvo was just really awkward and stilted. And it kind of felt like as a threesome, they didn't really have much chemistry in terms of presenting. When they're doing their kind of solo um, monologues, it went a little bit better. Although the whole like, you know, fancying men thing, let's bring men backstage and like pat them down and all that. It's just like, oh God, cringe, please stop. Um, Some of Amy Schumer's stuff was funny as well. But uh, yeah, interesting, interesting Eve. I guess like the Oscars always needs a massive, is always looking for a big moment and they got one in the form of a smack. Maybe not what they were looking for, but um, yeah. And also Billie Eilish won for best song. So go her. Um, In other State of the Nation news, uh, there was a Red Sea poll in the Business Post at the weekend um, on various things. Fine Gael are down again in the polls. They've dropped to 19%. Michael Brennan has an interesting piece of analysis in, in, in that newspaper that kind of talks about like the squeeze middle, you know, are beginning to feel the pinch and even more so. And that maybe was part of Fine Gael's base and they don't really have that anymore. And now they're kind of the only kind of committed base they seem to have is is like just the Finnegale fans and it's not really expanding outward from that. Um so it's really massively uh troubling, I suppose, for for Finnegale. There's a, a line that um Brennan has in that piece where he says, you know, that there's this theory within the party that when Leo Vracker becomes Taoiseach again, that'll actually turn around their fortunes I actually think the opposite. Like I, I'm not being personal about it or anything, but Vradkar is is quite unpopular amongst people who are really pushing um, the political, not trends, but but I suppose yeah, are at that kind of the political influence, I guess, amongst the electorate. So younger people, effectively, um, who seem to be very much at, at the at the vanguard of electoral po- politics in terms of trends and in terms of support. And we've seen that with um, Sinn Féin's popularity and also the direction Labour is taking. And um, But like at the idea that they'll get a Radker bump once he becomes Taoiseach again, while there is still a criminal investigation ongoing around the leaking of those documents, as we all know, and the general kind of foot and mouth kind of tendencies um, that Radker can have when he's kind of getting quite comfortable and this kite flying that he's doing the other week about um, income tax. So changing the tax ban to like a 30% one as opposed to like a 20 and a 40% one, I guess is what what he's trying to do, which is probably not going to happen at all. It's this tendency of just like flying these kites. But I always feel that when a political party is trying to jimmy with income tax bans and things like that, which is basically just like, Maybe if we give people more money, uh, they will like us. Or maybe if the, you know, middle class people who should be our base are completely drifting away from us because they're now experiencing the issues that we didn't care about other people experiencing because they weren't our base. Uh, you know, maybe if we like give them a few hundred extra quid a year in 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 tax, if they save that, uh, that'll help them vote for us. Like it's that's just not going to work. It's just not going to work because 
there are way bigger forces at play here in terms of the housing crisis, in terms of inflation, in terms of cost of living, which is experienced by people who aren't on high salaries, which is most people in the country. Um, and jimming with tax bans not going to do that. And it really kind of shows a party that feels increasingly out of ideas and drifting from a cohesive vision that matches with people's aspirations. So deep, deep, uh, dark days for Fine Gael. And if the, within the party, they think that it'll turn around once uh, they have the Taoiseach gig back, you know, I think that kind of speaks to the delusion there about the the perception of the party more broadly. Um, uh in positive Ireland news, uh, I'm fully in love with Ogbane and his amazing uh, goal and uh, cross um, in Ireland's uh, two-all draw with Belgium at the weekend. So brilliant to see these deadly players like just seemingly playing in a more liberated way. I kind of feel the same about um, the rugby team as well, that they're actually leaning into talent and flair and fluidity instead of settling or something or just going no we're just going to like hold what we have or be defensive or be conservative I have this whole theory about how the pandemic impacted um style of play in sport (laughs) um which I'm sure nobody is interested in but I've just have the thing of like people kind of you know coming out of this moment seem to be pushing themselves more or taking more risks in loads of different facets of their lives and I think that that translates to sport as well maybe that's a bit of a reach but I think um, there seems to be a generational shift in mindset within uh, Irish athletes and professional sports people where they're kind of shedding these limiting um characteristics of Irish team sport in the past and playing with something of, of, of uh, a spirit that speaks to kind of fun and flair and talent and freedom and that seems to be happening finally uh, uh, with with football so let's hope that keeps going and in news in news in the capital um, Dublin City Council are talking about uh, cycling uh, again, which is great. And also just like making the city more amenable to bikes and less so to cars. And Owen Keegan has framed this as, quote, aggressively restrict uh, road space for cars to provide more protected cycle lanes. Um, Olivia Kelly, his piece on that in the Irish Times on Monday. And uh, yeah, I think it's a really good idea. I wonder, though, with the language around what you're going, how you're going to restrict something how that automatically frames the debate as cars versus bikes, which we know is the most boring thing in the world, um, as 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 discourse goes, and how there could be perhaps better comms around that if the framing was we're actually going to do this amazing thing for the city and we have this huge vision and this is how it's going to be positively positively impact stuff instead of going yeah no you know cars are the enemy and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, I, I, I want fewer cars in the road. It's better for everything. Um, but yeah, maybe setting up a pitched back, battle is not the way to do that. Um, but, you know, far from me to uh, to uh, uh, declare what Dublin City Council should do or not. Yeah, right. Okay, listen. We are now going to talk about Rent-A-Plane. You may occasionally hear about Ireland's aircraft leasing sector, especially in recent weeks when sanctions against Russia uh, have meant that airplanes leased to airlines there that are currently in Russia 
have left those aircraft in limbo. Peter O'Dwyer, the business correspondent from the Business Post, has been writing recently uh, about this. And today's episode addresses everything you've always wanted to know about aircraft leasing in this country and the sector's current struggles and what happens next. So let's talk about that. So, Peter, before we get into the nitty gritty of the situation, when did you first clock or when was it kind of first clocked that aircraft leasing was this massive, strangely massive sector in Ireland, this like big business? Yeah, so aircraft leasing has been big business in Ireland for um, a number of decades at this stage, but it is becoming increasingly big business and has been for, especially through the the 2000s, really. Globally, the industry is growing. And so for reasons we'll outline in a second, uh, the Irish industry, which is uh, one of the biggest in the world, has been growing alongside it. If we look at why Ireland, uh, which seems like an unusual place to have a a global hub for for, uh, international aviation leasing, um, it comes down to two things, really. There's a history there, uh, and then there's tax. Uh, As often is the case in Ireland, tax is kind of front and centre as to why uh, we have a lot of this industry in the country. To deal with the history first, so Tony Ryan, uh, who a lot of your listeners would have heard of, at least in passing, if not know in some detail. He was an aviation executive in Aer Lingus. And basically, you can you can trace the whole industry back to Tony Ryan in the 70s. The story goes that he was working for Aer Lingus uh, at the time. There was a bit of a depression going on. Aer Lingus had planes that they couldn't fill. And so his bosses told him to find a home for some of these aircraft they had sitting idle they didn't have anybody to, to fly on their own Aer Lingus flights. So he was to do something with them to put them to some sort of a productive use. Uh, he ended up finding a deal with a, a Thai uh, airline that he gave two aircraft to. And he thought, this is actually quite a, a good idea. This could be a business. So he managed to convince uh, his employer at the time, which is Aer Lingus, and also a company called uh, Guinness Pete, which is a, a, an interesting uh, an interestingly named company. I always think when you hear Guinness Pete Aviation was the company that they founded. Guinness and Peter, you know, just two really traditional sounding Irish words and then aviation tagged on the end of it. But Guinness Pete was actually based in London. So between them, Tony Ryan, Erlingus, and uh, Guinness Pete set up this company, GPA, Guinness Pete Aviation. And that is where the entire aviation industry in Ireland stems from. That company was a huge success. It became the, the biggest company in Ireland. It was one of the biggest aircraft leasers in Europe and the world. Uh, and ultimately, it came a cropper in, in 1992 for it, it tried to float on the stock exchange and it, it didn't work. Basically, it fell apart and kind of the industry was born out of that. Mm. So that's the historical side of it. And then there's the taxation side of it as well. So what's the tax side of it? So the tax side of it is kind of, there, there's three strands to it. There's the first that would be uh, most people think of, which is just the 12.5% rate. Companies like the 12.5% rate, airline leasers are no different. So that really requires very little um, description beyond that. There's two other reasons, though. Um, one is that the country gives leasing companies very generous write-offs for depreciation. So without getting into the weeds too much, uh, and I'm certainly no accountant, so probably wouldn't want to go there myself, but it is common practice for all businesses that you can write off some of your tax bill uh, by taking into account the depreciating value of your assets. That's common across all sorts of industries and in every country in the world, really. But in Ireland, 
and in the aircraft leasing sector, the government and the country has decided that they can have a particularly generous version of that. So that allows them to cut their tax bill. And that's a competitive advantage that the leasing companies don't have in other jurisdictions. Um, so whilst the, the basic kind of write-off might be there in the other countries, this kind of supercharged write-off regime isn't there. It's only available in Ireland. So that makes here really attractive to them. And then the third thing is Ireland has what is called double tax treaties with, I think, 70 or 80 countries in the world. That basically means that if business activities fall due to be taxed in two countries, i.e. take the leasing example, Ireland, where the aircraft is leased from, and wherever, Singapore, where it is leased to, that, that business activity could be taxable in both, only for the fact that we have these uh, agreements with countries, double tax treaties. And in Ireland's case, a lot of those treaties allow certain taxes uh, to be set at 0% that would otherwise have to be paid. So there's three strands to the taxation. It's all a bit kind of complicated when you go further than that, but there are three really attractive tax elements that, that encourage the companies to be based here. Um, that kind of sounds like a bit of a wheel, I suppose, but I mean, I guess that's how things, so many things operate. I, I'm in, I'd be interested in wondering like what, why the state decided or, or whoever at the time decided that not only would the corporate tax rate apply, but also like this magic or supercharge, as you put it, additional write-off on depreciating value yeah. or whatever. I, I suppose there's there's two things. Number one, it, you could look at it and think it's, it's a reasonable decision in one way. It's because we have this genuine history uh, in the sector. And it is real. Like when I talk to people, I, I don't cover this sector all the time, but I've been talking to a lot of people in it um, for the last couple of weeks. And invariably, they'll all trace their background to GPA. And most of them weren't directly employed by GPA, but they were either in one of the, the kind of spin-offs, one of the competitors, or somewhere in the legal, tax, business services industry that grew up around them. So like that, that was a real organic industry that, that did grow out of Tony Ryan and GPA. And I suppose you could say, well, why wouldn't the government try and uh, accommodate that sector? And in many ways, it has been very successful, uh, as we're just talking about now. Mm. And then the other side is the broader Irish outlook uh, on the economy and on business, which is that, you know, we're a small economy. We, we open the door to, to these big multinationals. Uh, do we open the door to too great an extent by being too generous to them at times? I think an awful lot of people would say that, yes, we do. Um, but that is our general outlook as a government, or it has been a general outlook through various governments for a very long time, that we are accommodative to, to these big companies either setting up here or, or growing here. Mm. And in terms, so basically aircraft leasing is you have a load of planes and you rent them out to uh other airlines or carriers or whatever who may not have the hardware, basically. Correct. Yeah, it, it's not much more complicated than that. Yeah. And are all, the, but all of those planes, like they're all over the world, you know, so they're not like, there's not like a Hertz plane park out by Dublin Airport or whatever. So you, so it's, it's really kind of the logistics and administration 
that makes up the industry sector in Ireland? Yeah, so as you say, there, there's not there's not uh, car parks or um, plane parks, for want of a better word, where you've got these hundreds upon hundreds of hundreds of planes. And if you're interested, if you're a, a, a Dutch airline executive and you want one, you have to fly over to Dublin or Shannon and take a look at it and bring it home to you. That that's obviously not how it works, but it is it is coordinated from from Dublin and from Shannon. They're they're the two big bases here. Uh, and I suppose it's the exact same as a car rental service as you've outlined, but it's on a longer term. So you're not taking it for a week. You're taking it typically for kind of, I think, eight years is about the average lifespan of a, a leasing agreement. Um, and most of them, so there, there's two major uh, aircraft developers, which is um, Boeing and Airbus. Uh, Boeing being in the States, Airbus being in Europe. Uh, and a, on an increasing basis, uh, their new orders are coming from the leasers. So they will see that there's a pipeline of their customers want X number of planes. They'll be in touch with Boeing or Airbus and say, okay, well, we need five for here, 10 for there, 20 for here. And as you say, they coordinate all of that from, from Ireland. But the physical planes don't tend, or at least most of the physical planes at any one time aren't mm. in the country. And are these companies that are are in Ireland, um, and I'm not sure, I, I have no idea ballpark how many com- aircraft leasing companies there are. There's about 30 in around. Right, okay. Yeah. And so are they leasing aircraft to like loads of carriers that we would kind of know or be familiar with, or is it more kind of fringe stuff? Because that that's really interesting that you're saying that the Airbus and Boeing are increasingly taking their orders from leasers as opposed to, airlines because i guess you used to hear all these big things of you know a certain carrier has ordered all these planes from boeing and it's a big deal yeah. and all that kind of stuff so are they going are, are these like household name carriers that these planes are being leased to or is it more like regional ones or what's the yeah I, I think it's a bit of a mix i think uh historically it would be the, the smaller the newer the the more fringe airlines as you say uh, like we still hear the likes of ryanair take one of the huge carriers, they obviously buy huge amounts in bulk from, from uh, Boeing. So that scenario that you outlined still happens for the big boys. They deal directly. They have the capital. They have the money. They don't really need to lease. So a lot of the, the, the biggest household names wouldn't do very much leasing. But there are an awful lot of big carriers in Asia um, that, that would use leasing an awful lot. A lot of the African carriers would and then to probably a lesser degree, European and US, but still there's a lot of, as you say, regional and smaller airlines that, that would do business with the leasing companies as well. And for, as I say, I don't cover this industry all the time, so I'm not fully au fait with the detail as to why leasing is growing um, as opposed to the direct purchase, but that is a trend that is happening and seems to be, from all the projections that I've seen, it's forecast to continue to happen. And I suppose if you think of it then in the pandemic context, that would certainly make sense. Airlines in general have less cash to be going around and to be paying up front for, for new planes. So mm. they're probably going to increasingly turn to the leasing companies. How much is the industry worth in Ireland? I mean, I suppose that's a, a question that can mean many things, but like in real terms yeah. or in... So I, like all of these figures, uh, all of these studies for like the value of an industry to, to a region or to a country, you always have to take with 
a bit of pinch of salt because there's all sorts of um, assumptions and stuff that we don't see that go into them. But according to the industry itself, they say that it's worth about, these figures are 2019, I suppose there probably hasn't been updated ones from the pandemic. They're talking about 660 million per year economic contribution to the country. And that's that's across wages that they pay, income tax to the state, corporation tax, uh, you know, uh, business that they do with different suppliers, the professional services companies, all, all that kind of spend that would go into the economy. There was about 1,500 uh, direct employees um, and they estimate about 3,500 indirect jobs. Then on, so like we, we discussed all the professional services stuff, but then also there's a maintenance and, and uh, repair and operation uh, industry that goes alongside it. And like those, those jobs certainly are real. It's an industry that I suppose feels kind of nebulous because it doesn't affect our day-to-day lives. But certainly like I'm from Limerick originally and you do always hear, it's a bit like Dell was in the city before. There are lots of people employed by, by these guys in Shannon or in Limerick. So they are real companies with real jobs. Um, but I suppose the scale of the industry uh, isn't quite commensurate with the number of employees at the same time. 1,500 is a big number, but you're talking about billions upon billions upon billions of assets that the companies have on their balance sheets. Mm. Presumably, like uh, all across um, the aviation sector, the pandemic completely screwed a part of this industry, I would imagine, for, for a long time. Yeah, it, it did and it didn't, which is not to make you an answer of sitting on the fence, but it obviously did. I mean, it, it doesn't uh, take too much imagination to work out how the airlines not flying would affect uh, aircraft leasers. But it's a bit kind of like the bank, you know, take a, a domestic bank and a mortgage holder or a small business going to them. It, both are feeling pain, but like the customer, the mortgage holder or the small business is really feeling the pain. And the bank, to a lesser degree, uh, the bank can kind of deal with it. So in this instance, the airlines were really feeling the pain because they couldn't fill their planes, they couldn't get them off the ground. Uh, and the leasers had to take a bit of that pain, but not quite as much. And there's a couple of reasons, I suppose. First of all, these are, as we've just discussed, absolutely huge companies. They've got very deep pockets. They can take a lot of pain without it really threatening their viability. Um, they have access to really cheap finance because of that size. They can they can raise money really easily. So if they do get into any sort of trouble, uh, they have a relatively easy way out of it. Uh, the government supports that helps the airlines would then obviously have provided some comfort to the leasing companies as well, um, because they would have been able to maybe on a lesser degree, but service those payments to the leasing companies to some extent at least. Um, if they, they can repossess the planes now, Again, a bit like the banks, you know, that's kind of a, a last resort for them, but they can take the asset and just give it to another airline if it comes to it. There was a bit of that went on, albeit not a huge amount. And then the last point, which is, I think, a point that we'll get onto as well when we talk about Russia and the current situation, is that these guys aren't just uh, leasing out planes willy nilly. They have uh, diversified portfolios, which is a real business term, but uh, in the truest sense, they will only lease X amount of their fleet to this part of the world. They will only lease X amount of their fleet to this size of a carrier. They will only, you know, so they're in different parts of the world with different sized carriers, uh, different types of carriers. And so whilst we might have thought a single 
you know, no plane was flying for two years there. That wasn't the case. There was different um, restrictions in different parts of the world at all times. So whilst their overall business took a hit, they, were, they always had bits of it that was operating. Mm-hmm. And so for all of those reasons, yes, they felt pain, but basically they weren't, like they were never at risk of going under over the last two years. Right. Now, of course, then, um, some of these planes are leased to Russian carriers or are flying in that region. Um, and we then have these uh, kind of unprecedented, who knows how effective they are, but put sanctions against, um, well, people say Russia, but it's against, you know, various, the, the economy of Russia and various, various oligarchs and all that kind of stuff. What happens then? Because this is a global industry um, and I think obviously Russian money and, and Russian business is woven into, you know, every economy in, in Europe um, and, and the US and elsewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, it, as you say, in really simple terms, the West doesn't want its businesses doing business in Russia at the moment on the back of the war. So the sanctions that the EU brought into effect basically meant that the Irish and every other aircraft leasing companies had to sever the leases that they had with the Russian carriers. Uh, in theory, that sounds all right. You cancel the lease, you get the plane sent back to you, you can lease it out to somebody else. In practice, obviously, that's not happening. The Russian airlines aren't just offering up the planes and sending them back with, with a bow on them. So you've got billions, potentially billions of euro worth of assets stranded out in Russia. So that's a pretty bad situation, obviously. The pretty bad situation was then compounded about 10 days ago, I think, uh, maybe two weeks ago now at this stage, when the Kremlin passed a new law that allowed the Russian air air carriers to re-register those planes uh, with the Russian Aviation Authority. So... And the purpose of that would be to allow them to fly again. They they would have a registration according to the Kremlin and Russian authorities. They were registered. They were allowed to fly. Um, that puts them in a much trickier situation where there's basically two main aviation agreements. One is called the Cape Town uh, uh, Convention. One is the Chicago Convention. Cape Town deals with private rights, so... Russia versus the aircraft leasing companies, and the Chicago one is a kind of sovereign agreement between countries. Um, By not returning the planes, they were in breach of the first one of Cape Town, which supposedly is a serious but not hugely serious breach. And then if they re-register and start flying, uh, then they're also in convention of Chicago, which apparently is completely unthinkable to anybody in the industry previously, that you just, you, you wouldn't do this. Um, so that's likely to end up in all sorts of disputes going to the International Civilization, Civil uh, Aviation Organization. Uh, and all of that will play out kind of between the countries. In terms of the leasers, though, first of all, they have lost uh, their income from all those planes that were over in Russia. Secondly, if they can't get them back it, before too long, they're probably going to have to write them off. So you're talking about billions of euro of assets being written off their balance sheets. Um, and then... Thirdly, they might have cover with insurance, like all of these things. Again, we've seen that play out in the pandemic with small businesses here uh, and, uh, you know, whether they had cover or not. There are all sorts of complicated insurance agreements in the industry, but some people that I've been speaking to say that they're unlikely to, to cover them. Uh, and even if they do, they're going to have a really long protracted legal battle before they get any sort of cover. 
one person told me that uh, from he from what he had heard, the insurers were telling them to quote go to hell so far. Um, so that's unlikely to give them much peace of mind. But coming back to the diversified portfolio piece that we just mentioned, even though there are billions of euro worth of assets out there, they're each only a small little proportion of the individual companies. Um, portfolio. So Aircap is the biggest aircraft leaser uh, in the world. It is based here in Ireland. It has 152 aircraft in Russia, which are valued at 2.1 billion, but that apparently is only 2% of their Wow. These like, these guys are making a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. And they're clever. You know, again, just when you, when you apply common sense to it, you go, wow, they're in big trouble. Billions of euro of assets stranded over there. And obviously it's not good, but they're not actually in that big trouble because it's only 2% of their business. And apparently that would be quite typical. Avalon is the second or third biggest leaser in the world that's also based here in Ireland. Uh, they have a smaller number of planes, but apparently it's about 2% again that are, that are in Russia. Wild. So this is a, a, a problem for them. They will probably have to take a financial hit, but much like the pandemic, it's not existential. Gotcha. But it is, I mean, obviously it's not even in the top 50 craziest things um, that the Russian government has done in the past uh, month. But the idea of load of Russian airlines lease these planes, the sanctions come in, the Russian government goes, uh, they were registered over there, but we're now saying they're registered over here. And also you're not getting the planes back. And also all of the kind of safety things I would imagine, like all of the criteria that you have to fulfill before you take off because you've been cut off from, you know, the global economy effectively, you're now just on a wing and a prayer, you know, pardon the pun, but, but that does seem to be the vibe. And then my understanding was, you know, that that this is, you know, really devastating for the, the poor um, aircraft leasing company, but you're just saying that this is basically like, getting your scooter nicked and you have a garage full of <laughs> Range Rovers or something, is it? Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to be. It, it is bad. I mean, nobody wants to be writing off billions uh, of your worth of assets, but it's a hell of a lot easier if it's only 2% of, of your business. Uh, and nobody wants to be foregoing that rental income that they would have been getting otherwise. But again, if it's only that slice of your business, it, it's, it's just not... Everybody I've spoken to said it is not a threat to their viability. It is not an existential crisis for them. Uh, They'll have to take some pain, but they will be okay, basically. And just to talk briefly about what you were saying there about like re-registering the planes, it it is kind of a wild, you know, a wild east sort of scenario that that you think of there where these planes could be flying domestically in Russia if they're re-registered and just kind of behind, you know, the Iron Curtain, these planes just flying around the place in Russia. I was asking people, like, what happens if they decide, well, we're going to try and land this plane in a third country, uh, somewhere outside of Russia? And I was basically told that whether it would happen or not would probably depend on how friendly or otherwise that that country's regime is to Russia. But basically, uh, it's like kidnapping. One, One person told me, it's like kidnapping an Irish citizen, only you're kidnapping an Irish plane. Planes carry... The nationality of where they are registered. So if they fly this quote unquote kidnapped Irish plane into another country and land it, by right the authorities in that country are supposed to go and seize it. And I was kind of asking these people, you know, what does we hear about that in in uh, 
kind of broad brush strokes, you know, when you hear the authorities of a country should go and seize an asset, it, it kind of, it, it's hard to see in real terms, especially with something as big as a plane, like how does that happen? And they were like, you know, no, literally it does mean like the local sheriff or something has to go and arrest the plane. You know, they, they bestow all these kind of human characteristics on the plane. You'd have to go and take possession of the plane. And then the aircraft leasing company here in Ireland might get it back uh, if they can if they can fly it back to Ireland. But it just it, you can conjure up ideas of like these standoffs on tarmac where Russian planes or Russian airlines land Irish planes and Turkish or you know Ethiopian authorities have to go and arrest the plane and return it to Ireland. It's it's kind of stuff like out of the films, but it sounds like by right at least that is what would have to happen. And in time, like there's also blockades on parts going to Russia now. So they won't be able to service their existing aircraft fleet as they need to be repaired. And again, people I spoke to from my reporting over the last couple of weeks were saying, in time, they're probably going to start stripping the leased aircraft for parts because they won't have the parts to service their own. Uh, so, you know, if this goes on long enough, this, this goes on for five years, there mightn't be planes to be returned to Ireland eventually. Wow. And it is kind of more, I don't know what the, there some must be some kind of term for like the cultural, social, political aviation Venn diagram, but it is kind of returned to the bad old days of, you know, potentially of, of, of commercial aircraft safety in Russia, you know, when Aeroflot during yeah. the Soviet era was almost a punchline in, in aviation safety. And I think it was five times um, I think they had five times more uh, incidents and crashes and, and and stuff like that. And then obviously kind of coming out of that era, you know, even though they didn't rebrand, kind of work towards um, bolstering their reputation through not, you know, having so many crashes, basically. I mean, there's life or death. Yeah, life that's or death the stuff. specter that's being raised here, yeah. And the uh, as you were alluding to, like the certs that go with all these planes to show that they're airworthy, they're all withdrawn once they're, you know, once we're in the situation like we are now. So they shouldn't be leaving the tarmac, basically. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, and I mean, in the short term, that's probably OK. They've been recently serviced. You'd imagine they're all OK. But the longer it goes on, obviously, issues are going to crop up. And it seems inevitable then that there would be safety issues there and probably like really serious crashes, as you're saying. So mm. uh, it's a yeah, it's a pretty grim uh, parts to this overall grim story of the war. So um, what happens next in terms of the Irish companies? Um, although I'm, 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 in, I'm enjoying this context now that if I, if I hear, a, you know, an aircraft leasing czar, uh, mm. probably shouldn't use that, that term, uh, on the radio in, in ribbons about this impact on their business, they're probably not telling the, the whole story of, of their broader success. But what does happen next to these companies in Ireland? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So at that kind of high level, as I say, there probably will be complaints in time. And I think that's at a state level, you know, Ireland or the Irish Aviation Authority would have to make these complaints to to the UN organisation and all of that will play out. In the short term, as I say, if they don't get the planes back, which doesn't look likely, they'll probably have to write off uh, the assets in, you know, this year's accounts or next year's accounts. Um, will they get cover from the insurers? Maybe, but again, that's probably likely to be years down the line. Um, so I suppose what happens to them is they just take the financial hit for now. They might get some of that back if they get some of the planes back. They might get some of it back if they get the insurance in time. 
But for now, they, they've certainly lost the rental income for the time being, and they don't have control of their assets. Um, and while it, I, I agree, like, it is really difficult to, to cry salty tears for them if it's only 2% of their business. I suppose on the other hand, to be fair, they are their, they are their assets, they are their, their planes, they have done nothing wrong here, they are entitled to them back. And oh, big time, yeah. If the government or anybody else is in a position to help them in that, and I don't really know how they would, but if they can offer assistance, like it is the right thing to return these planes to them. Um, but yeah, you're, if, if somebody is uh, over-egging it, I suppose, telling you about how dreadful this is, certainly it, it should be placed in the context of the fact that it isn't, um, isn't existential to them. And actually, a kind of just a related point as to what happens next. It's really interesting that a lot of these uh, leasing agreements are based apparently on what is called non-recourse lending, which is basically that uh, if if the asset can't be uh, taken control of again and you can't enforce it, so like a mortgage, if you can't repossess the house, and if the bank can't repossess it and sell it and get their money back that way, then uh, typically you would still, you as the homeowner would be on the hook for that. A lot of the financing arrangements in this industry are on this non-recourse basis, which means that the banks could also be on the hook for a lot here. So let's say there was a plane for... 10 million quid, the leasing company put up two and a half million to, to buy it. They got seven and a half million from their, their lender. Uh, if they can't get the plane back, they take the two and a half million hit. But the lender might be taking the seven and a half million hit because they can't come after the leasing company in a mm-hmm. lot of these arrangements, which is a really interesting uh, kind of peculiarity of the industry. It's, it's different to how most uh, financing arrangements work. So uh, that raises the prospect of they're not really the domestic banks of AIB and Bank of Ireland. They have some exposure, but they're 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 small players, as you would imagine. In this industry, it's the kind of big global banks based on the IFSC um, that would be taking a hit there. And then a couple of people raised the prospect of the government potentially being on the hook for some of the losses as well. Now that's a little bit. It, that's probably conjecture, I suppose, but their their argument being that the sanctions at EU level that forced the leasing companies to cancel their leases were actually kind of pointless. They only uh, served to put the aircraft companies into the position they are now where all their assets are in Russia. Their argument is that the Russian carriers couldn't fly anyway. There was already an overflight ban across the European skies. So Russian airlines couldn't come in here anyway. They've been taken out of uh, the SWIFT payment system, which we heard loads about. So their argument is the business was crippled from the Russian side anyway. The sanctions you made us uh, cancel our leases through really had no impact other than to damage our business. So we want you to indem- we want you as the government to indemnify us for part of our losses. Now, I don't know, stranger things have happened. I suppose they have the comfort as the government of the fact that this is an EU level thing rather than just a domestic policy that came through. So the chances of, of them being on the hook maybe is lessened by that. Mm. But certainly it, it was a couple of people, not just one person who raised the prospect of uh, the government in some shape or form, at least having to fight a battle on that front, whether they'd actually mm. have to cough up anything or not. Um, I would suspect that would be politically toxic anyway. Yes. We were bailing out the aircraft leasing companies. Bit of a reach on that one. Yeah. Shades of um, the, the argument uh, 
press up we're making during lockdown for their <laughs> businesses to be reopened, uh, um, confronting the Irish government with that. But thank you so much for all that context. I know a lot more now um, than I did uh, before we spoke, which is excellent. Um, but before you go, I just want to ask you a little a little bit about my favourite um subject over the past few years, which is inflation. Um, and and everybody's talking about it right now and have been for the past, well, in Ireland, maybe a little bit too late um, because of, of, of how the situation was, was progressing. We're now kind of hearing these little, you know, nuggets or kites from various politicians. I think Leo Bracker was, was talking about it recently, just being like, you know, it's kind of worse than everyone thinks and standards of living are going to fall and blah, blah, blah. I think everybody's noticing it in their, you know, the supermarket or in the restaurant or whatever. Mm. How, but it's hard to get your head around, right? Because like, it's that thing like inflation, you know, kind of how does it happen, you know, gradually and then suddenly, Mm. how screwed are we basically in this country? Because our inflation, our main inflation issue is of course, and has been um, rent and, and and house prices and that's something we're in control of and we could address but the other stuff now is compounding everything so are we re- are we in a, a lot of trouble when it comes to the money that's going to be draining from people's pockets and bank accounts? Yeah, yeah I think the simple answer is that we are I was writing a piece at the weekend and I was trying not to call it an inflation crisis or a cost of living crisis because uh, we seem to live in this kind of perma crisis where we're going from pandemic to war to everything and everything can't be a crisis. But uh, it is really serious. And as you say, it's it's something that affects everybody, the man and woman on the street, and affects them really seriously and really immediately. Uh, as you say, we've got three big drivers of inflation. We've got the housing issue, which is, just seems to be intractable, unfortunately. We've got energy prices, which we as a country can really do next to nothing about. It's, it's big global factors at play there. Uh, and those factors are, are moving to, to our advantage recently and don't look like they will be anytime soon. And then we've got food security and food, food prices. And that's stemming from the war in, in Ukraine because both Russia and Ukraine are big producers of different types of grains, but also all sorts of chemicals and fertilizers and all the unseen stuff that goes into food production globally. Uh, bad news is that um, house prices and rents are almost certainly going to keep climbing this year as they seem to do every year. And from everybody I've spoken to over the last fortnight or so, they all say that whilst the energy uh, inflation has fed through or at least has begun to feed through to us, and we've seen that with the various companies upping their prices in the last couple of weeks, the food inflation actually hasn't uh, that hasn't started to feed through yet in any meaningful way, which means that that's all yet to come because there's just a, a lag from the disruption to supply chains and all the rest of it coming from the war and us actually feeling it here. So you can expect food prices to be going up uh, before too long. And as I say, there's no real easy way out of this. Uh, a lot of it is big geopolitical stuff that we don't have control over. The domestic housing issue, we, we do have domestic control over, but we can't seem to get a grip on it. Uh, and so there doesn't seem to be much uh, of a reprieve in sight. The ESRI um, were expecting, part of the war, they were expecting inflation to peak this month in March 2022 right. and then start to taper off a little bit throughout the, the remainder of the year. They've now completely scrapped that and they're looking at 
prices growing faster than ever, sorry, faster than they would have ever predicted prior to the war, uh, inflation at levels not seen since the grim days of the early 1980s. And for that level to persist right the way through most of this year, and then at a lesser degree into 2023 as well. So from, we've moved from a point where we expected the peak to be this month to now the peak being sometime probably in late summer and the, t- the, the, the rate still remaining really high for the rest of the year and into 2023. So there's no, there's no kind of immediate uh, good news on the horizon, I'm afraid. Holy moly. Well, we may return. We're Well, we're kind of constantly talking about inflation, but we may return to it again. Um, it, it is one of those things that, like you say, like it has landed in some ways, but not in others. And when they all come together, um, might be a bit of a shit show. Yeah. And I mean, we won't go into it in much detail, but just briefly, like you get into all this stuff about like central banks and what they're going to do with interest rates. Typically to take the heat out of inflation, uh, central banks up interest rates to take some money out of the economy and cool it that way. But like that, in the short term at least, only adds more pain. If you have yeah. to deal with your energy bills going up, your food price going up in the supermarket, and now your mortgage is going up if you're lucky enough to have a house and have a mortgage, well then that's not giving people much of a reprieve. So there's this real kind of catch-22 at a policy level as well, um, which there's, there's no easy way out of that. The, the central banks probably will increase interest rates. The Fed in the US and uh, the, in the UK, the, the central bank there uh, have been doing so. The yeah. European Central Bank probably will too. But it's not like this magic wand that makes inflation go away and makes everything better. In the short term, at least, it can actually be more of a pinch point for, for people on the ground, which is, uh, again, not a, a great situation to be in. Well, plenty to look forward to for 2022 then, Peter. <laughs> you're welcome. If you've been, as you said, if this is a favourite topic for years, well, you're, you've been well ahead of the gang uh, in that sense. And I'm sure you've had time to process all of this bad news, at least. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Um, I try not to talk about it too much because it's just so, so bad. I'm going to get uh, much worse. But anyway, um, as for now, thank you so much for... Um, uh, that your really great in, insights on on aircraft leasing and, and and the weird kind of freakonomics aspects of it uh, as well that are being impacted right now. Peter Dwyer, business correspondent with the Sunday Business Post, a paper you should all be subscribed to, of course. Thank you so much for joining us. Very welcome. Thanks. I'm leaving. It's bananas and getting the seed to Andrea. I feel like it's really her domain and I cannot uh, infringe upon it. But I'm going to go straight to my bits, my or my fave bits. My fave bits this week. Um, I am, of course, watching the new season of Top Boy, one of my favourite shows. I just really, really, really think Jasmine Jobson, who plays Jack in that show, is a just a brilliant actor. I just think their character is amazing. And Top Boy started off a little bit slowly. It's, it, this new season is is really quite different to previous ones it's much more expansive um some of it is shot or you know set in spain and in morocco and you're kind of seeing this broader landscape of the logistics of drug trafficking effectively um uh in in this context that was previously quite inward looking in terms of uh, how it was set in a brilliant way like i loved that about uh, top boy so this is it's a different show now which is it's really interesting to see how people kind of expand and broaden out uh, how uh, the a show as it develops, but I'm still really enjoying it. Um, music is also amazing. Um, 
glove box uh, the bar in the car park in Dublin City I had been threatening to go there for a long time with a couple of reservations cancelled as we all have with over the past year with close contacts and all that kind of stuff um, and I really enjoyed it it uh, is a very interesting setting it's got some great art it's got a vibe and very very pleasant and you know I do sometimes find it a little bit rare to come out of uh a, a, a night out in Dublin sometimes and not I feel like there's something new going on or a different kind of thing or something done very well often that's not the case um, and I feel like this is the case uh, with with Glovebox I haven't been to the restaurant part of it yet the Alto Winter House part but I enjoyed it a very delicious coconut old fashioned um, now speaking of going out uh, Mother's Pride Block Party tickets are flying out if you want to get on top of that They've actually got three now. The, mother, the block party itself in Collins Barks in Dublin over Pride weekend, uh, June 25th, 26th, I guess, um, with Anita, Brazilian superstar, and Peaches. Amazing. And of course, uh, they also have years and years playing um, on June 24th as well. So loads of Pride vibes to get well ahead of, um, considering that it's only March or end of March. <laughs> Where's the year going? Um, so yeah, get on top of that. And also another of my fave bits, Aches has an exhibition at Hang Tufts Gallery on Exchequer Street in Dublin. So check that out as well. An amazing artist. Now it's time for Book of the Week. 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 My Book of the Week this week is a collection of poetry. I mean, I don't really know how to pronounce this, but I'm going to have a go of it. The spelling is C plus N-T-O, so it's Kunto, basically, and, and Othered Poems by Joelle Taylor. Um, it's a really, really energetic collection of poetry. It examines kind of butch lesbian counterculture through like these d- fantasy dive bars and love stories, part memoir, part kind of queer reflection, part tracing a history that maybe is kind of change or the places obviously as we know the 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 global kind of shutdown of uh queer bars and scenes due to gentrification things like that it's it's really calming and it's a beautiful read so Kunto and Other Poems by Joelle Taylor that is my book of the week now this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and Acostway Media Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack Sarah Fox did all our design and this week's Tuna Chicken Roll, it's a disco classic. It's The Love I Lost by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. I've been Una Malali. This has been United Ireland. And that was Rent-A-Plane.
Get up.